This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's Sunday morning on the Fed. Matter of fact, summer Sunday morning. First day of summer, officially. Happy summer, everyone. Welcome to our program. I'm Bob Solter. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program by Michael Barron. Michael is a co-author of Subtle Acts of Exclusion, How to Understand, Identify, and Stop Microaggressions. It's an interesting title for a publication. He is uh, joining us on a program. We're getting into a lot of areas of discussion. His background, he holds a Ph.D. in cultural anthropology. He's been researching, teaching, and practicing around issues related to diversity for over 20 years. And he is... Um, Joining us by phone on our program. First of all, it's nice to have you uh, join us on our program this morning. Thanks, Bob. Great to be here. That title for this publication, how did you guys come up with this? Well, the title, in effect, is the whole argument, right? Um, so what my, my co-author is Dr. Tiffany Jana. And so what we did is, you know, we found that these things called microaggression, which for people listening who aren't familiar, it's when people are maybe, they're not trying to do anything bad. They're not trying to do harm, but they, they might be trying to bond or to ask a question or to compliment someone. And the effect, though, is the opposite. The effect is it makes someone feel bad or excluded or diminished. And so these things are quite common, actually, um, relating to people of all different marginalized identities. So we're not just talking about race here, but ethnicity, gender, sexuality, disability, religion, age, all, all the different dimensions of diversity. So what we saw in, in the research is that these things keep happening to people, and they're, they're serious. Like, they're affecting people's happiness, their satisfaction in their job, even their mental and physical health. And we weren't making progress on them as a society. And so what Tiffany and I found independently, we worked for different organizations, but what Tiffany and I would find um, is that we'd go, we'd do workshops with people and we'd try to get them to see how important this was. And we started to realize that that term itself, microaggressions, might be at least part of the problem in the way that it framed the whole concept in the way that it got people thinking about what this was and how to deal with it. And so, for example, um, one of the things it would do is it get people really defensive. Like, you know, so to give you an example, we'd say, hey, you said you're so articulate to that person, to that African-American person. Um, that might be a microaggression. And, and they'd say, what? I wasn't trying to be um, aggressive at all. And they'd get super defensive, and that would stop the conversation. Or, and even more importantly, um, you know, everyone else would feel like we're, people were saying these are just micro, they're a small problem, they're not a big deal, when in fact it's quite the opposite. 
And so what Tiffany and I decided to do is reconceptualize this whole thing and just call these things what they are. First, they're subtle, right? That's what makes them hard to even think about and talk about. Second, they're not intentions. They're acts. They're things people said and did. And we can talk about those in a more productive way. And then exclusion is the effects of them. So that's the opposite of inclusion. You know, I'm, I'm a diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner. And what we mean by inclusion is that people feel welcomed, valued, respected, and heard. And when these things happen, they create the opposite of that. And so that's why we just said, let's, let's take this new term and put it right there in the title. And even introducing these kind of ideas to an audience, I mean, how do you expect this to be received? Yeah, well, we've had some experience now um, doing presentations. I've done a bunch of different presentations on this, talked with lots of people. And the, I, so I kind of know how it's being re- received by people, and it's, it's fantastic. I mean, what I mentioned about how these microaggressions or subtle acts of exclusion keep happening to people and people are so frustrated by it and so tired of it. I mean, the same kind of thing might happen to someone, you know, 10 times in a day, right? And, and they are so frustrated and have maybe tried to speak up about it and say something like, hey, I don't, you know, when you ask me where I'm really from as an Asian American, it makes me feel like I don't, you're saying I don't belong, right? They might have tried to do that, and the person got defensive, and so they just stopped trying and have got and got kind of resigned to the fact that this was going to happen over and over again. And so when we present this idea and this different way of approaching this concept, along with a whole lot of guidelines and deep understanding for talking about it more productively, when we share that with people, there's almost a sense of... Um, relief and hopefulness that maybe we're not stuck in this. Maybe we don't have to be just resigned to the fact that this is always going to happen. Maybe we can really make progress and come together to stop these things from happening, to be able to have conversations about them without all the defensiveness and to really make progress and even culture change. Michael, do you at all have to be concerned about people who might view this as basically just being semantics? Um, (laughs) People might think that, but the way that you frame a concept is super important in the way that it implies what's at stake here, in the way that it guides people's understanding of the concept itself, and in the way we deal with it in the real world. So if I say, if, if I were a marginalized person, I'm not, I'm a white man. Um, if I were, you know, an African-American man and I said, hey, when you called me articulate, you know, it felt like you were saying that people like me aren't expected to be articulate. And that's a microaggression. If I say that and the person receiving it says, I wasn't trying to be aggressive at all. What are you talking about? Blah, blah, blah. And now we're in a, an a adversarial kind of discussion, not getting anywhere compared to, right, if I said, and if we were all, I mean, this is the key, if we all at an organization had been, had gone through some training and some practice on this, and then I said, hey, you know, that was a subtle act of exclusion. I know you didn't mean anything bad by it, but it was a subtle act of exclusion. And the other person said, ha, huh, like, I'm hearing that. Tell me more, right? And we were able to come together around this and actually make some progress that's not semantics, then now the way the term is doing that framing in one situation leads to a bad outcome, and in one situation, potentially a better one. And that's great. So it's not just semantics. A natural question in the age in which we live, the time in which we're living right now, and realistically, this time of the year, this year, surrounds the aftermath of the George Floyd uh, killing. Yeah. How... I guess, how could this all be handled better based on what you're talking? How could the, um, how could what exactly be handled better, Bob? Uh, Specifically, in terms of the way in which, 
you know, there's certain things that fall in the category of being exclusions in this country that might be very explicit. There, yeah. people will point to things that are structural in nature. Yeah. Yep. And what you're talking about is something that's kind of far removed from that in a way. Or, mm-hmm. or, or is it? Right. Yeah. I'm glad you asked that. That's really important um, because I don't think it is. And, we, and Tiffany and I don't think it is. And here's why. Um, so you see, you know, you see the horrific injustices. There are certain things that you just, you know, you can't, you can't not see. Right. And, um, and those happen and they're horrific. And, and then underneath that sometimes what you don't see what's kind of invisible is so much of the foundation on which our our unequal unjust and not inclusive society operates and those explicit um those explicit horrific things that we see rest on this larger foundation of structural inequality of unconscious biases and of these um, subtle acts of exclusion. And so um, what's so important is that if we're able to address and actually make some progress on these everyday things, we can start to chip away at that pyramid, chip away at the foundation on which all this other stuff rests. And so that, I mean, what we're looking at here, right, we're, we're in this for the long haul, um, you know, as a society. We're looking at a paradigm shift from a long period of time where people were not treated equally or justly and moving to something new where hopefully this is where we're moving, where people are truly uh, have true equity, true inclusion. If we're going to get there, it's going to take the work on all of these different levels. So yeah, there are, there's a whole range of exclusions, right, in the world. Some are very explicit and some are way more subtle and implicit. And we've got to, if we want to get to this new place, we've got to address with them. And, you know, even in, in this time when people are trying to, when more and more people are speaking up and um, seeming to come together around um, Black Lives Matter and things like that. Even in that process, uh, people are committing subtle acts of exclusion all the time. And so it's important that we're addressing them, even specifically in this context. This idea of the subtle acts of exclusion, um, let me put a scenario out there that I know you address in, in your work, but I think this is something that a lot of the people who are listening to our discussion today can relate to. And I want you to address how this can sort of, I guess, cross the line into that whole subtle acts of exclusion area. Yeah. A man who's wearing a ring is asked a question, and this happens a lot. Mm-hmm. What does your wife do? Mm-hmm. How does that yeah. cro- how does that cross the line? Yeah, yeah, good question. So what this what that does, right, is it reveals this assumption about heterosexuality, um, and 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 I see this you see this all the time. Um, and so if that man is married to another man, then what that's communicating to him is even if so. Let's take this scenario and play it out man is married to another man, and someone says, hey, what does your wife do? And he says, "Um, well, my husband actually does this. And even if the person goes, oh, okay, sure. Oh, sorry about that, right? Even in that case, they've already communicated. They've already done this subtle act of exclusion where that person feels you're not normal, right? When there's a pause, when there's an assumption um, that he, this wouldn't be something you would obviously potentially be is married to a man. It's communicating you're not normal, right? Or, or you don't belong in this society. And so we've got to get rid of those assumptions. I mean, I see this all the time. I have four kids and I see this all the time. Like people coming up to my, you know, my boys and saying, yeah, do you have a girlfriend yet? Or people coming up to my daughter and saying like, oh, watch out. You know, the boys are going to go crazy for her. 
all these assumptions about heterosexuality, even with children who don't even, you know, they haven't even, they don't even know what, who they're going to love and who they're going to be romantically interested in. Um, but we've just got to get, you know, this is what I talked about in terms of culture shifts. We've got to get to a place where we don't have those assumptions, where it's not assumed that what's normal is a heterosexual relationship, where everyone can be accepted as normal. And it's, it's not that complicated to ask someone like, hey, oh, I see a ring. First of all, are you married? And what does your partner do? Right? It's not that complicated. Mm -hmm. Another scenario. And again, this happens a lot. Someone who's white says to a co-worker who is an African-American, I don't even see you as black. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, that person right. probably thinks, well, it's what I just said. I don't even see you as black. Mm -hmm. How could that be anything anybody would see as being wrong? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's an example. That's a clear example where basically then, um, you know, you're, that subtle act of exclusion is, made, is telling the person, you are invisible. Like, if I am black, right? And so if you don't see me as black, you're not seeing me as who I am. And, and it's communicating probably something problematic about the way that they see the category of black people, right? As if there's only one way to be black. And so if you're a little bit different than that expectation, I just take you and put you in a separate category um, rather than changing your expectations of that category itself and maybe not being so stereotypical in the way you think about it. What kind of evidence is there that for someone who experiences microaggressions, what that really takes in terms of a toll on the person's emotional well-being, even their physical health? Yeah, yeah. So in the in the literature, you can see um, you can see connections between people's um, people who experience these things often and their, their mental health from experiencing them, their physical health in terms of, you know, stress and anxiety and lack of satisfaction in a, in a workplace, not feeling belonging in a workplace. And that's, that's serious. I mean, that, besides the impact on the individual, which in and of itself is, is dangerous, um, when you're talking about a workplace, and, you know, most of the work that I do is with people in the workplace um, through InQuest Consulting, um, when you see that exclusion, that kind of exclusion can happen really fast. It, and, and, and when people start to feel excluded at, the play, at a place, they often they stop giving their whole selves. They stop trying to really um, invest and they're all their creativity, all their critical thinking, all of their energy, and probably start to look for a different job if they're feeling excluded in a place. And, you know, we're seeing that, gosh, we're seeing that so much these days, even with, you know, let's take the example of the, the moment we're living in right now and um, the leadership of an organization not sending out a message to all the staff right? Addressing what people may be going through. Mm. Just even that lack of sending a message <clears throat> is making people feel that absence and it's making them feel excluded at the place where they work. And, and that's critical for an organization to address, right? It's critical for the person. Obviously, <clears throat> we want everyone to feel fulfilled and satisfied and happy and not have to, you know, have their mental and physical health impacted by these things. And it's critical for organizations to address if we really want to have everyone feel valued and respected and welcomed and fully participating. As opposed to feeling like they're left out, they don't matter, et cetera. Yeah, ab absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. We're talking with Michael Barron on our program. Michael is a co-author of Subtle Acts of Exclusion, How to Understand, Identify, and Stop Misaggression, uh, microaggressions, and he's joined us by phone on our program. I'm Bob Salter. When we're talking in this discussion, there's so many different areas where we can go. Yeah. Um, 
The idea of having conversations about the subtle acts of exclusion, mm-hmm. how tricky can that get? Because I, mm-hmm. I can also understand some situations where, you know, you might get some people who are not going to be real receptive to this. How, how then do you handle it? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, they can get, they are tricky, right? Because we're humans. And humans, with all our messy emotions, that can make things complicated. And so it's, it's really important to, to set us ourselves up for the best chance of success with these conversations. So one way to do that when we're working with an organization is to make sure everyone's on the same page to get trained for what these things even are, these subtle acts of exclusion. So often, people don't even recognize them if they're not happening to them, right? Um, So, for example, subtle acts of exclusion that are happening to women, uh, so often, men don't even see it happen necessarily, a lot of men, right? And so that's the first thing is just building up an awareness of what these are and how common they are and um, what they're making people feel, right? What the problem is with them. That's one part. Then building in um, some real concrete practice and strategies for being able to have conversations that are productive. Too long we've just left people to their own devices to talk about this or not, and then the conversation can easily turn into an adversarial sort of um, situation that doesn't go well. And I've I've seen it happen. I've seen people, you know, dig their heels in, like, I wasn't trying to be aggressive, and, you know, how can you say that? You don't know the context. You don't know what I'm thinking. And, And we're not getting anywhere when that happens. And so one of the things that Tiffany and I do in the book is we have some real concrete strategies for how to have that conversation if you're the person who experiences the subtle act of exclusion, or if you're a person who just maybe oversees it, sees it happen, or hears about it happening. It's important for you to be able to speak up as an ally, too, so that the responsibility doesn't always fall on the marginalized person to speak up about these things. And then the person who said the subtle act of exclusion or who did the subtle act of exclusion, they need to have concrete strategies and guidelines, too, to help this go productive. Because sometimes, it, because of what you said, it is so tricky. And yet, if we want to have these conversations, if we have relationships, if we're at work um, with coworkers, if we're with family, if we're with friends, and the relationship is important, and we want these conversations to go well and not just evolve into a shouting match, um, we need to have these strategies and to practice them. And we really can. I mean, you know, we've been doing, uh, the folks that I work with, we've been doing this diversity, equity, and inclusion work for over 20 years, most of us. And we know best practices for when those conversations go well, what were the factors that contributed to that? And so a lot of that finds its way into the book and into the trainings that we do and the digital programs that we create to help people practice this. Um, you know, digital programs are great because we created one recently where we had a graphic novelist um, depict some of the common examples that happen to people. And we have people go through this scenario, the same scenario, from the perspective of the person that experienced the subtle act of exclusion, the person that oversaw it, and the person who said it, and practice different ways of responding and seeing what happens, just so you get a sense in your head, oh, yeah, if I do this, this could be a good reaction. If I do this, it might not be a great reaction. What are all the, practice that on your own in a sort of safe space. Or when you get into the real world and you have these conversations, your first response might be a better one than the one you had been thinking of before. And, and that's so critical because these, we don't want to set ourselves up for failure by thinking, oh, I'm just not going to do any subtle acts of exclusion and then I'll be fine because guess what? 
We all do. And so they're going to happen for sure. And so let's prepare ourselves the best we can for these tricky conversations. That term microaggression, you know, some people might immediately um, attach kind of a a negative or an aggressive label to it, hearing that term. Mm -hmm. How do you, I guess, flip that in people's minds from being viewed as something negative right off the, right off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of that is the whole reconceptualization that we've done with subtle acts of exclusion. So, you know, especially in the, in organizations these days, people are really starting to have an understanding of what inclusion is and why it's so important and trying to move toward inclusion, what are inclusive practices, what are inclusive leadership practices, really understanding how inclusion matters for an organization in all these different ways, in people's satisfaction, in problem solving, in literally your bottom line. And so then when you frame this as a subtle act of exclusion, the something that's taking away from inclusion, that automatically has signals to people, this is important, and I kind of know why, and I want to do something about it, right, rather than um, a personal attack. And now I'm not saying we always have to take care of, you know, we always have to take care of the person who, who said the, the microaggression or the subtle act of exclusion so carefully and worry about what they're feeling, for example. Like sometimes, it, it does feel aggressive what someone does, and sometimes it is aggressive. They're, like I said, there's a whole range of these things. And so um, sometimes they are aggressive. And then we're talking about something else, and we're not necessarily talking about subtle acts of exclusion, but we're in a different realm that we need to talk about and address in a different way. Most interesting discussion that we're having with Michael Barron on our program, co-author of Subtle Acts of Exclusion, How to Understand, Identify, and Stop Microaggressions. One of the thoughts I've had is something that I've kind of saved toward the end of our discussion. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that I've read that you actually counsel is this idea of expecting that these subtle acts of exclusion will happen. Yep. And some people might go, what? Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's key, right? It's key there to have realistic expectations. So when they do happen, right, it's not like record scratch. Um, (laughs) you know, I'm, I'm being accused of being a bad person, and I, I marshal all my defensive um, resources, right? Because nobody wants to be a bad person. And that's the thing, right? For the most part, people aren't waking up in the morning thinking, how can I exclude others today, right? We're all, we're trying to be good people. And if we kind of, if we expect these things to happen, that this is a normal part, when we're trying to really um, come together across differences and, and similarities and differences. We, these things are going to happen. This is part of the deal. And so if we expect them to happen, then we can kind of commit to, you know, as my colleague David Stone would say, um, stumbling and fumbling through this all together. But we're committed to doing it together. We recognize that You know, this hasn't always been done well, and we're trying to move to something better. And so if we just expect this to happen and practice ways of then responding so that we're ready to have productive conversations that invite people into a conversation, that build trust, that build inclusion, that um, help people actually move to this better place, um, then, then we can really get somewhere. And that's, that's what we're trying to do, right? We're really looking forward to, to culture change, whether we're talking about an organization or society at large. And, and we're not there yet. And we have some work to do, but we've got to commit to doing it together and to have, you know, open conversations, transparent conversations. We don't want the situation that we're often in right now, where people are 
too afraid to even talk about this. I mean, I was I was work, doing some work for a veterinary hospital, and they said things were so tense around the topic of race. They literally felt like they couldn't say black lab when a black lab came in for treatment. That that's not productive. We need a culture where we're much more open and able to talk about things and make progress and come together in a new sort of way. Michael Barron, who is co-author of Subtle Acts of Exclusion, How to Understand, Identify, and Stop Microaggressions, our guest this portion of our program. Thank you very much for joining us. Wonderful discussion. Certainly the best with this book and your work. Thank you so much, Bob. It's really been a pleasure talking with you. Hope you're enjoying our discussion on The Fan this Sunday morning. And Ligori is along talking golf at 7. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program. I've been looking forward to speaking with Marjorie Kelly for some time. She has an interesting uh, background to bring to our discussion today. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, most uh, intriguing publication, too. The book is The Making of a Democratic Economy, Building Prosperity for the Many, not just the few. There's an idea for you to think about as well in our discussion. Uh, Marjorie is joining us by phone on our program. Uh, she and uh, Ted Howard are going to be having a public event um, in the city on the 23rd of this month. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Good morning to you. Uh, in your background, one of the things that uh, struck me, in addition to putting this to get, book together, is you were affiliated with the Democracy Collaborative. Can you tell us about that venture? Yeah, the Democracy Collaborative, we're a, a nonprofit with offices in D.C. and Cleveland, and we do economic development that is helping communities that are mostly disadvantaged. So we work in both theory and practice uh, to build the democratic economy across the country. We have a staff of about 40. We've been around for close to 20 years. Okay. Now you've used an interesting term, and theoretically I used it in the title of your book. Democratic economy. It's an intriguing term. What does it mean? Yeah, that's a great place to start. You know, we right now have an economy that's by and for the 1%, the wealthiest people. And we need an economy that's designed for all of us to flourish. And that's what we mean by a democratic economy. And we don't just mean, say, for example, regulating capitalism as it is. We mean really a different kind of system that's designed from the ground up for the prosperity of everyone. Like take, for example, employee-owned companies. Right now, most companies are owned by shareholders. Shareholders are largely the wealthiest 10%. And, uh, and so when you have companies that are owned by employees, controlled by employees, you have a fundamentally different kind of uh, possibility there. You have companies that can aim to serve employees and not just, uh, not just those with capital. So that's what we mean by a democratic economy. We mean institutions, structures, processes. Everything in the economy is designed for all of us to flourish. Some will say, well, wait a minute. How, re how realistic is this? Well, right, of course. You know, it sounds pie in the sky, doesn't it? But what we do in the book is we go around and we visit, well, where is this already emerging? I mean, this, is, this has concept in various forms has been around for decades. It's emerging all over the globe. There are thousands of employee-owned companies in the U.S., there are, uh, there's economic development uh, that's designed to be inclusive. In one chapter, we visit Portland, Oregon, and we look at how the entire economic development department there reoriented itself toward racial and gender equity. That's now their prime purpose, and we talk with a with a young entrepreneur who was helped by them and went on to become um, Oregon Entrepreneur of the Year, Tyrone Poole. He, at one time, was a homeless man. He um, started a company that would help to match uh, people who need affordable housing with, with openings. And uh, th that's an example of, you know, you have this basic part of the economy, economic development, designed to serve people who were normally excluded. This is happening all over, Bob. And when you 
introduce these ideas, this approach, what's the reaction? People are excited. We, people um, like you are sometimes skeptical. They're like, they don't <laughs> think this is possible. They don't think this is real. And then when, it, when we talk about where it's happening and how it's happening, people are excited. And, and then I think the next thing they say is, well, but isn't that tiny fringe stuff and how do we ever... How do we ever get to a different kind of system? So there's a whole series of reactions. Okay. Uh, now, this takes us perfectly where I'm thinking and want to go. Uh, how do you respond to that? And then the other aspect of this is, why are people like me so skeptical? I mean, mm-hmm. w- w- what, do you, what do you point to? Well, you know, most people can more easily envision the end of the world then they can envision the end of capitalism. <laughs> you know, we live inside this system. Margaret Thatcher from the U.K. famously said years ago, there is no alternative uh, to capitalism. And, and we live inside that idea, and, and the media it reinforces that. We, this is what we, we read about every day, is the publicly traded companies and the movement of, of the stock market. And we don't, we don't think about the economy that's that's beyond that that this it hasn't really broken through into awareness so it's there we we also people don't know how to think about the structure of an economy most people don't even know what that means we just think oh government regulation versus free markets that's the those are the paradigms that we've lived in for so long and we're talking about something that goes that goes deeper than that so um yeah, so there are reasons for skepticism, you know, and the deepest reason is, of course, that, that capitalism is, is global, it's worldwide, it's huge, it's, it's hard to imagine it ever being replaced. But, but what I would say is that capitalism is, is on a collision course with uh, all kinds of crises, and I, we need to begin. That, that's happening all on its own. We, we don't, no one needs to rise up and make that happen. And so we need to begin asking, well, if this system is not sustainable, then what kind of system is? And that's the conversation that we're pointing to. Tell us about your co-founder and co-author, Ted Howard. Yeah, Ted is the president of the Democracy Collaborative. He's um, been running it for 20 years, and he's he's a, a, a an old uh, lefty agitator, I guess I would say. <laughs> and now he, he he travels the globe and he, he talks to, he's going to be talking to the London, the Royal Society of the Arts, and um, he is sought out by uh, business leaders and, and academic leaders and government leaders all over the world saying, you know, we know the economy we have doesn't work, particularly in our community. Help us, help us figure out what comes next. And um, so that's, uh, that's what he and I are, are writing about. At the beginning of our discussion today, I mentioned the fact that on the 23rd of this month, just a couple of days away, you have an event at the um, Strand. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's actually our formal book launch. We're thrilled to be in New York City for the, the formal launch of the book, July 23rd. That'll be at 7 p.m., and, and Ted and I will both be there, and we'll just be talking some about the book, and we hope everyone will come out. Doing this book, I mean, two thoughts. One is, why was it important to put this in book form? And then secondly, what does that mean for the two of you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is the first time that our organization has really said, um, what is a clear articulation of the paradigm that we're working for? We've been working various pieces of this for 20 years. I've been writing about various pieces of this in previous books and doing this work in impact investing and progressive business. And so uh, lots and lots of people have been working on pieces of the democratic economy for decades. But no one has yet put down how does this add up to a new paradigm, a new way of organizing an economic system rather than just a little cool thing over here or over there? No one has really articulated that, and that's what we set out to do in this book, and we did it in a simple way, and we did it in a short way. I have a friend who's a art uh, art history uh, professor, and she said she read it in one sitting. So it's it's designed to be read by ordinary people. And, and what we're, what it means for us is a chance to say, 
let's get serious about seeing ourselves as the next economic system. And by ourselves, I mean the thousands, ten, the tens of thousands of people who are out there working for change in this economy. We are the next system, and we need to take that that seriously and begin to see ourselves that way. And as you get this feed, feedback from people who are reading the book, being exposed to your message or messages, what are you hoping they're going to take away from it? I'm hoping they'll take away a couple of things. One is some hope that there is an alternative. It's, it is relatively small. It is a relatively early stage. Uh, but that was true of women's suffrage. That, that's been true of every, every serious movement for change. That was true of, true of solar power back in the day. Everything starts out small, and, and yet we can have hope. So that's, that's one thing. And the other thing is I want people to come away questioning the legitimacy of the system as it is. Seventy-two percent of Americans say they believe the economy is rigged against them. <laughs> people know this economy is not for them, but they don't know how. People don't know how to think about how an economy is actually structured. We unveil that in this book. We talk about how it actually is structured that way in investing, in the way companies are designed, in, in the way the stock market is designed. All of it, it there are these invisible structures that, that serve uh, the few. And once you see that and you realize that an alternative is possible and is actually out there functioning, it's not communism, it's not some pie-in-the-sky utopia, it's just real alternatives that are out there right now, then you begin to say, well, why, why do we put up with this? Why do we accept an economy that's designed for the 1%? That's what I really hope people will come away with. And when you are able to boil down some of the um, principles that are outlined in this book. Do you think that's a way that connects your message well with readers? That's the hope, Bob. Systems science tells us that human systems are organized around values. It's not about forcing things. It's not about making a ton of new laws, although that might be necessary. It's about what do we instinctively value and how do we organize ourselves to serve what we value. For example, people value uh, sustainability, ecological sustainability. We know that we need to live on this planet and we need to keep it intact. That's a, that's a value that's pretty widely embraced. Inclusion. People of color will be the majority in the U.S., uh, by around 2030. This is not a fringe group that needs a, a little program on the side. These are people who are our fellow citizens, and we need an economy that's designed to serve, to serve all of us. So inclusion, sustainability, um, you know, a democratic companies. People, people long for work that has meaning and where they have voice and those kind of, those kind of companies are possible and are out there functioning. Place. People care about their cities and their towns. Corporations today will abandon them to go find, uh, you know, go seek a better place to extract more profits, but people care about their cities and so how do we design economies where wealth stays local and recirculates? And, 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 keeps, and keeps the local place flourishing. And community, I mean, we're all in this together. We, ha we have an economy now that says, you know, make yourself, make yourself rich. And so we have billionaires who are out there, uh, you know, uh, young entrepreneurs who are seeking to become billionaires in Silicon Valley, even though one out of three children are going hungry in their own community. But the way things are set up, they don't, care about that. There's no designed-in way for them to care about that. And so these kind of values are what we are talking about and the way that these, these alternatives to democratic economy is actually being organized. Most interesting discussion that we are having on our program with Marjorie Kelly. Um, she is uh, talking with us and sharing information that is contained in the book, The Making of a Democratic Economy, Building Prosperity for the Many, 
Not Just the Few. I didn't ask you earlier, was that the uh, only title for this book, by the way? Yeah, that's that's the main title, and the subtitle is uh, Building Prosperity for the Many, Not Just the Few. Uh-huh. In this book, one of the things that um, I think can connect well with your listeners or with our listeners and also with the people who will read the book, who may in some cases be one and the same, is this idea that you share examples. And I think that's a real powerful way of connecting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you're able to communicate what it is that you're really trying to accomplish. And it's got to be in a crystallized fashion where people can, oh, yeah, that's, that, yeah, that's where they're going with this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. It, you know, this is not Marjorie and Ted's great idea for making a better world. <laughs> yeah, you're, not, you're not doing rock, rocket science or something like that here, right? <laughs> Right. No, this is not rocket science. This is not some complicated theory. You know, this is thousands of people all over who know instinctively that we need to do something different, and they set out to do it, and people have have figured a lot of things out. I mean, we, we look, for example, at uh, uh, in, in Cleveland, where we've done some work, and uh, city leaders there, anchor institutions like nonprofit hospital systems and the university, got together and said, you know, for-profit companies have fled Cleveland. Lots of white people have fled Cleveland. The city lost more than half its population. And they looked around and they said, well, we're not leaving. You know, a Cleveland Clinic is not leaving. Uh, and so what can we do that will help uh, our, our local community to flourish? And they did all kinds of things. They did a, a Greater University Circle Initiative. Anchor, these anchor institutions got together and said, let's, let's pool our resources and, and we'll, we'll buy locally, we'll hire locally, we'll invest locally. And they've done lots of things. One of the things they did is they built um, Evergreen Cooperatives, which which our organization helped with. And this is three employee-owned companies, a large commercial laundry. So, you know, every hospital has tons of laundry. They take it to this employee-owned facility. And, and lo and behold, it turns out that employee ownership is a superior way of doing business. You have lower turnover. You have higher quality. And they're actually able to pay higher wages at this uh, at this company because they don't need to extract all these profits to give to shareholders. And so this model is flourishing and is, is, is starting to spread. Others are coming to, to Evergreen and saying, we, we want one of those. And, you know, lots of the employees at the Evergreen Laundry are formerly incarcerated. They come from the neighborhoods around the laundry, which are 95% people of color. And that was deliberately where they built, uh, they built this laundry. And um, in the Evergreen Laundry, it's helping its employees buy homes and buy cars. They're using tax abatement from the city. So these are employee-centered companies, worker-centered companies. And that's an idea most of us don't even dream of. <laughs> and, yet, and yet here it is happening, and there, and there are, are many other examples. Is it tricky... Um when you're putting forth the idea of a new economy, but yet trying to keep in mind that planetary boundaries have to be respected? Yeah, that's absolutely essential, Bob. And that's, uh, you know, we call it the alpha and the omega. You start, community and sustainability have to be where you start and your end. We're in this together. Um, you know, so local places need to flourish, so we're in this together as geographic communities, and we're in this together as one planet. That's the ultimate community. I mean, none of us can thrive if the planet um, suffers. And so, you know, we talk about a lot of examples that are small and local and that, that all of us can, can participate in. We also talk about what are some of the bigger uh, programs or, or systems that we need to put in place to actually accomplish, accomplish uh, sustainability. One of them we look at in, 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 in Chapter 7 is how the Federal Reserve could finance an ecological transition. I mean, we, uh, 
uh, our colleague Carla is working on uh, a pretty audacious idea to just go and buy out 51% of the fossil fuel companies and start to wind them down. And we, we looked at it um, and said this would cost around $700 billion. But the Federal Reserve could basically bring that money into existence without taking it out of, of, uh, of tax dollars. In the same way that we bailed out the big banks in 2008, that was $700 billion. I mean, you might remember Hank Paulson down on his knees as, as Treasury Secretary saying, to Nancy Pelosi, please give me $700 billion. And he got it in the blink of an eye because banks in trouble, that was considered an emergency. Well, what about the planet in trouble? Is that considered emergency? Couldn't we also conjure $700 billion into existence to save the planet? And so this is a, a, an audacious idea that's, that's being circulated that uh, some funders like, and, uh, and, we, and we talk about that in, in one of the chapters. Marjorie Kelly, our guest in uh, this portion of our program, Most Interesting Chat. Uh, Marjorie is a co-author of this interesting publication entitled The Making of a Democratic Economy, Building Prosperity for the Many, Not Just the Few. And she and her co-author Ted Howard have an event at the Strand Bookstore, 7 o'clock on the 23rd of this month. Thank you very much for being kind and joining us in our discussion. It's been great, Bob. Thanks for having me. Wonderful chat. Certainly the best continued with your work and with this book. Thanks. You have a great rest of the day. Enjoy this first full day of summer 2020, everyone. Hopefully it's a good one. We'll see you next Sunday morning, bright and early at 6 o'clock. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.